text for the message this morning is Micah, the last verses of Micah, chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, page 781, under the title, God's Steadfast Love and Compassion. We'll read that together, Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. Micah ends his prophecy, Holy Spirit says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, although scientists estimate that the lowest part of the Mariana Trench in the western Pacific Ocean is around 11 kilometers deep. It's called the Challenger Deep. It's deeper down than Mount Everest is high. The average depth of the ocean is three and a half kilometers. It's classified as deep sea. The utter darkness of the abyssal and haddle zones of the deep sea are largely unknown to mankind. Besides a a few pictures of some random creatures that happened to get caught in the lights of a few deep sea vessels that are down there. You will also never see the tons of pharmaceutical, nuclear, and other waste that scientists say have been dumped into the depths, especially in the 1970s. Although an average person could go out and buy a telescope and learn quite a bit about outer space, we have no easily accessible instruments that permit us to take a look into the deeps, the depths of the sea. Today, with all our technology, the depths of the sea are only slightly less removed than they were in Micah's day. And so we can understand the comparison that is being made in our text, just like the people in Micah's day could understand the comparison. It's a picture the Holy Spirit gives to us to tell us how far God removes our sins from us. Like the junk that mankind has thrown into the sea. Like useless dead leaves that a hiker treads on underfoot. So God throws the sins of all who believe in Jesus Christ into the depths of the sea. And what really catches our attention this morning is that God does this motivated by by nothing else 
other than the fact that he loves showing his people love. He loves to show his steadfast love. Who is a God like the God that we can preach today? And I preach to you the forgiveness of sins of all his covenant children who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only Savior under the following theme, delighting in his mercy, the Lord throws all our sins into the depths of the sea. We'll see that God loves to show steadfast love. We'll see that God puts our sins out of the way and God fulfills all his promises. Micah 7 verse 18 makes it very clear that God is different from the gods of any other religion. The claims of the Christian faith are unlike the claims of any other religion because our God delights in showing steadfast love. That's probably the main biggest difference of the gospel that we believe. What can be more comforting to the believer than the fact that God finds joy and pleasure in showing you his steadfast love by forgiving your sins. Although he has been severely offended by our sins and rebellion against his most high majesty, although his anger burns against the sinner, his justice is found in in the context of his gracious and his marvelous mercy. He looks upon us like a man or woman may look upon a a kicking, fighting, biting baby twirling around in the mud. If we look at Ezekiel 16, a baby that hates him or her and God desires, God finds joy in remaining faithful and responding to hate with love. Responding to the biting with patience. Responding to the fighting with forgiveness. Over and over and over again. He delights in his mercy. He delights in bringing those who are dead and rebellious to the light, to life. Long before we may even think of asking or or praying for help, God has reached down in his mercy to seek us who are trembling and and fleeing away from him. That's why when the Lord Jesus called Lazarus from the grave, just like when he called Lazarus from the grave, that gave glory to his Father in heaven that showed what our Father is like. The joyful message that we preach, that we love in the church of Jesus Christ is that God loves to show his steadfast love. And his steadfast covenant love does not depend on your good works, on your faithfulness in doing everything on that little list you have in your mind, doing everything just, just right. It doesn't even depend on your prayers in the first place. When you pray, you are not spurring God on to action Some churches even teach that you need to go up to God and demand your rights before him, and then he will give them to you. But your prayers simply express that you are are pleased 
that he delights in showing love to you. You're pleased in receiving what he wants to give. You don't need to be a, a good bargainer to receive the forgiveness of sins. You don't need to try to make deals with, with God in order to, to have his mercy shown to you. That's a great thing. We have nothing to offer in the deal if we would try to make it. The gospel that God delights in showing unconditional love to every one of you. It leaves absolutely nothing for you to accomplish for your salvation through good works. And God's prophet uses language that points to something that God always does. Speaks of a God who is pardoning iniquity, something that's constantly being done. He's passing over. And so the last part of verse 18 is a declaration of the, the very nature of God, not something he shows sometimes, but he's always pardoning. He's always passing over. He does not retain his anger, but he delights in steadfast love. The first verb that, that God uses, the word pardon, also can mean to bear or to carry. It points to sacrificial animals, the animals that bore the iniquities of the people that were confessed upon their heads before they were slaughtered in the place of the sinner. And the second verb that God uses, passed over, that points to the night of, of the Passover in Egypt when the blood of a sacrificial lamb was, was painted on the doorposts of the homes of those who believed in God, of the faithful believers. And every house that had blood on the doors was not touched by the angel of death who passed over their homes and did not punish them for their sins. Both these verbs we see clearly point to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. For just as it was God's desire to receive the blood of the Lamb in place of the blood of the Israelite in Egypt, so God continues to delight in, in passing over our sins in Jesus Christ. Today I may preach to you that if you believe that Jesus Christ is your substitute who bore your sins on himself, who paid for your sins when he died on the cross, then God will forgive your sins. He wipes them away. He makes you pure and clean again. And if this wasn't wonderful enough, as, as, the, as the end of the preaching, we can even say that it was the, the, the joy of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to give his life for you. He says that in John 4, he delights in doing the will of God. It's, it's like food for him. If you're a visitor here today, you, you need to see the grace of God for you who repent. The Father saves sinners because he wants to. And his son was, was happy to come to earth to give his life as a sacrifice for all who believe in him. That's the joy of our life as Christians. That's what we celebrate every day in our homes, in our work, in our school. God does not retain his anger forever. He delights in mercy. 
There's no explanation that we can give for God's work in saving us miserable sinners. Other than that, he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he delights in showing mercy. Before we ever asked or desired this of him, while we were still sinners trying to find our way to peace through our works, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. When his children rebelled against him, it was necessary to discipline them in his love. But then after they were punished, we read that he again showed compassion to them. He turned and he again showed his love to his people, to those bought with Jesus Christ. Four words, brothers and sisters, that we need to hold on to and cling to. And remember, in all those times in our lives when we we wonder how is it possible and why me? Four words, God delights in mercy. You can write that down. Put it on your door as you leave the home, on your fridge. God delights in mercy. It's our hope. The profound reminder especially when we walk in the dark periods in our lives, when doubts arise, when we're tired by ourselves because we keep committing the same sins over and over again. God delights in mercy. It's because he delights in his mercy that he promises to throw our sins out of the way. You see, brothers and sisters, where where the sacrifice has been made, no payment for sins is necessary anymore. Where sin has been paid for, there's no sacrifice for sins left. Our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, he bore our sins upon his shoulders. And everyone who believes in him is like that Israelite safely tucked beneath the doorway painted with blood as the punishing angel of death passes over his transgressions. The Lord does not ignore our sins when he passes over them, but he sees that they have already been paid for in the work, the blood of Jesus Christ by the Son of God who took on human flesh to suffer the agony and the torment of hell for our sins. Since Jesus Christ became the sin offering who was slaughtered for us, We can be assured that God will not punish our sins a second time. So the moment we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, he tells us you have crossed over from death to life, to eternal life. And so there we are with our Savior under, in his sacrifice, under that doorway painted with blood. And the devil comes up and he accuses us of sins that we see even in our own lives. But all those accusations turn into false accusations because every sin in our lives that the devil can point to, every sin has actually been nailed to the cross and paid for by Christ's blood. That's Colossians 2 verse 14. The devil is pointing to sins that have been paid for. Yes, but, but even false 
accusations are still there. And when people refuse to recognize the the sins that are forgiven, then it can happen that even those canceled sins can continue to create division and sorrow and doubt in our minds. On the Day of Atonement, we read about a little bit from that in Leviticus 16, when the high priest listed all of the, the confessed and forgiven sins that were the, of, of the sin offering that had already been paid for. He was listing the sins that the first goat had already paid for, and he was confessing them over the second goat, and he was symbolically placing all those canceled and paid for sins on, on the second goat. Well, that goat was still there in the midst of the people. They could still see and they could still hear him reminding them of their sins. It still created divisions, even though the sins were were paid for by the bull and the goat that were offered up before the verses we read. Paid for sins that continue to cause problems. Sometimes that happens between us as well. When we keep bringing up a sin that was supposedly, was supposed to be dead, supposedly had to have, has already been dealt with and, and forgiven. Remember visiting a, a person, he, his, his wife had, had been unfaithful to him. And, and he, they prayed together and he said, forgive, I forgive her. I forgive her. And then he mentioned it again the day after and the day after and the day after and the day after and the day after. And, the day after and, and we said, that's, he goes, yeah, but I forgave her. And yet she lived each day with that burden as he brought it up over and over and over again. When we do this, it's like giving, it's like giving a second life to a divider that Christ died for. It's supposed to be dead. We even give more power to sin by allowing it to hurt us twice, to hinder our relationship to God and our neighbor even after the sacrifice has been offered. It's like that goat just stays there the whole time. And it's for this reason that God commanded the Israelites to lead the second goat far out into the wilderness, to drive it away from the people, to show them that not one of those confessed sins could stand between them and the temple anymore. God's forgiveness involves both the paying for sins as well as the, the removal of confessed sins from the picture so that they are no longer mentioned that they are no longer pointed out, that they no longer are used to hinder relationships. Our text promises, and rather than let that happen, God breaks the power of canceled sin. He throws our forgiven sins into the depths of the sea. And then in Ephesians 4, verse 32, the Holy Spirit tells us to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Holy Spirit is saying, pay attention to Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. 
Although sin may be a symptom of a disease that will never be healed in this life, or sin may break things that can never be repaid, or sin may take away things or loved ones that can never be restored. We can think of a case of murder. Sin is not more powerful than God's love and Jesus Christ's work. Although a convicted criminal who has been forgiven in Christ's blood will want to avoid certain situations that will, avoid, that will tempt him to sin again. Although a, 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 a forgiven sinner will recognize the scars and the fears and the sadness that his sins have caused, the promise of our text is that God will no longer remember the sins of the past. They are taken out of the picture. And consequences should not be confused with punishment. We can call forgiven criminals who are sitting in prison for their crimes. We can call them brothers. We could say that they are sisters who have peace with God in Jesus Christ, even while they're seeing the consequences of their sins by being in prison. Let us forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Let us delight in the repentance of a sinner, refusing to repeat the matter over and over again as a hindrance to brotherly love. It's this removal of forgiven sins that is highlighted in verse 19. There is no way that sins that have once been forgiven can come back and haunt our relationship with God because we read he treads our iniquities underfoot like the dead leaves under the, the boots of a hiker. The sins we have hated and fled from as we turn to God in humble submission, those sins cannot hinder our union, our fellowship with God and his children. The payment for sin takes them out of the picture, sort of like an, an accountant clearing his desk by throwing the bills that have been paid for in full, throwing them away into the fire. Our text tells us that God casts all our forgiven sins into the depths of the sea. He says all, all of them. 10 kilometers below the surface of the sea where no one can see them again. Thrown out by God himself as he joyfully tells you that this very act, which is the epitome of his steadfast love to undeserving sinners, that this very act delights him. He loves it. He loves to show this steadfast love. Whatever Christ paid for on the cross is what God throws into the sea because God is faithful to his promises and he fulfills them. And the last verse highlights that faithfulness, verse 20. God will show faithfulness to Jacob, we read. Show steadfast love to Abraham. Both Jacob and Abraham were dead when Micah spoke these words. But the clear meaning is that God will show his love 
to the generations of the descendants of those who worship the Lord of Jacob and Abraham as their God. Forgiveness of sins and the renewal of the relationship is a part of God's faithfulness to his covenant. It's a part of him being true to his word. In Psalm 105, verses 6 to 7, God swore that he would bring salvation to the people of God. God swore it so Micah could simply say that he would do it. And when Zechariah heard that his son John the Baptist was to be the the herald announcing the Lamb of God, whom God would send to save his people, he responded to Micah's promise in in Micah 7 verse 20 with with a resounding amen. He pointed out that the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the sacrificial lamb, would be born. And then he says in, in Luke 1, verse 70, just as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. In verse 72, the, the mercy promised to our fathers. In Luke 1, verse 73, it was sworn to our father Abraham. Brothers and sisters, we do not need to doubt that God delights in his mercy, that he will cast our sins into the sea. Because as we saw last week when we looked at Hebrews 6, God swore by his own name so that our soul can be anchored in something that is sure and unwavering. And as we go through the the prophecy of Micah, We could see that all the the major themes reveal the triune God's covenantal faithfulness to all the generations of those who love him. And you can have your Bible open and you can follow along. You can remember what we, we heard, we listened to as we went through Micah. The prophecy that that begins with the fury of God's wrath in chapter one, verses two to nine. That this prophecy ends with with the flowing fountain of his mercy. Starts with anger and ends with mercy. In the first three chapters, God's covenant people are warned in a divine court case that God can see their selfishness and their greed. The greed in their own hearts. He warns us that we should not fool ourselves into thinking that we can continually, uh, continue willfully in the sins of oppression, that we can do all these horrible things and still think that, that God is okay with that. He warns us that God can see and then he tells us to lift up our eyes away from the pitiful self made kingdoms that can be taken away by the invasion of a foreign kingdom. And then in chapter four, he reveals to us the international kingdom that he has in store for those who keep his commands, for those who who love justice. And we, we looked at the plan of God for the world. We looked at his mercy And we could see the the Gentiles that were flowing to God's holy throne. And we could recognize that we are a part of the people streaming to worship at the throne of our sovereign God. Something that's happening in time. 
God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his word. What he said in the past, we see today. And then Micah 5, it it spoke of that, that promised shepherd ruler. It was something in Micah 5 that they were looking forward to. And when we looked at Micah 5, we were looking back to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the the great king. We celebrated his kingship together because God is faithful to his promises. We see it. It's real. We care very much about what God swore to Abraham and what God promised to Jacob because in that word, He assures us that he will always walk with us, that he will always lead us in the way that we should go. He will lead us so that we do justice, so that we love mercy as we we hop with him from stepping stone to stepping stone. And then when we fall, he lifts us up again. The journey, walking with a God who delights in mercy is a marvelous journey. motivated by his own good pleasure, his own delight in himself and his delight in his own mercy. Our God sent his son to pay for the sins of undeserving sinners. He fulfilled the sacrifices. He fulfilled the Passover celebration. If you were a listener, if you saw Micah, you heard him speaking to you, these were words that you would carry with you even when you were sent out into exile. You would walk into exile, you would remember God delights in mercy. That's who he is. Brothers and sisters, the same word is a word that we have, that we hold to. He delights in his mercy. That's just the way our God is. He is our God. We are his people. And when we stop, as we do today, and and we think about that, the Spirit works powerfully in our hearts, gives us the desire to, to adore and to worship this God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength today, every day, for for all eternity. Let us praise him. Amen.